0: He says, sure, I'll buy that from you at 95 cents on the dollar. The other five cents accrues to the unit holders in the fund. It doesn't go anywhere else. So
1: access to a variety of sources that may appreciate in the face of global currency devaluation, I see it as a use case, for sure.
2: Because people, the line that drives me the most batty out of every line, oh, I like blockchain, but I don't like Bitcoin.
1: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike
2: Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing Less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Masterclass.
0: In this podcast, we have the pleasure to be joined by Fred Pye, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of 3IQ Corp. He also serves as the Chairman of 3IQ Digital Holdings. And 3iQ is a pioneer manager in the digital asset space with a variety of Canadian and international mutual funds, as well as ETFs, providing access to a variety of different cryptocurrencies for traditional investors. In this episode, we discussed the early history of trailblazing in a unique asset class such as cryptocurrencies, the regulatory challenges of Bitcoin. Is it a commodity, a security, or a currency? closed-end funds and their advantages for investors, four years plus 10,000 pages of due diligence on the road to getting this asset class democratized, frontier asset classes and client retention, the impact of Bitcoin on the third-world economies, and the future of the blockchain. We thoroughly enjoyed this episode and hope that you will too and look forward to seeing you in future episodes. All right, everyone, here we are. Resolve is riffing with Fred Pye, the founder of 3iQ, one of the progenitors of transitioning or transforming digital assets into assets that can be traded via traditional accounts right on the tip of the spear when it comes to early adoption in Canada, navigating countless regulatory bodies in order to provide, I think, what is potentially pretty massive value to Traditional investing portfolios and to investors who take an early adoption type of tack to their portfolios. Welcome, Fred. How are you doing?
2: Great, Mike. It's great to be here. And I'm joining you from sunny Spain today. That's right.
1: He's in a bunker somewhere, right? Like you are. Who are you hiding from?
2: (laughs) I'm actually, if you take a look at the book, Bitcoin Billionaires, which was written about the Winklevoss brothers. They actually discovered Bitcoin at a club in Ibiza. So I'm uh, in a marina not far from there, and on Friday night we're going to go disco dancing in Ibiza, and relive the crypto discovery of the so Bitcoin. it's
1: Bitcoin Hollow Ground. Yeah, You're going Bitcoin back crypto. to the to Mecca, yeah, that's in it. No way, right?
0: <laughs> the, the veritable whaling wall.
2: We'll see if between July 1st and July 4th that we've got the Americans, (laughs) we've got both the Canadians and Americans, crypto people celebrating at the club. We'll see.
0: So tell us about your journey a little bit. So you've had this dream of kind of sailing the seas. Give us a little bit of where'd you start? What'd you do? How are you liking it?
2: Yeah, well, my father is English and both my father and grandfather were in the British Navy. And I was very fortunate at a young age. My father and his, you know, the Brits, they all get little boats and they they're all wooden boats and they make you varnish them every year and do all the hard work. And I like the hard way on how to be a good sailor and enjoy sailing and how important it is to pay attention to detail. And sailing's like being a pilot, like people have these passions on how to let the wind take you where it is you want to go. And I always had this dream of sailing around the world, but there's always a hundred reasons to find excuses not to fulfill those dreams. and Mike you know I've had my health issues I've had a bypass I've had cancer I've had a stroke so there's not necessarily a lot a long time for me to to start living this dream and you know what covid did Mike is it really taught us that we can run our businesses and we can work from anywhere in the world right now and I haven't got the blur screen and I haven't got the fake office behind me this is my office as i said the office moves around a lot and it was funny because we bought the boat in England And in England, when you go there, you have to quarantine for 12 days. And they call you every single day to make sure you're quarantining. They said, well, where are you today? We said, well, Falmouth. And the next day, well, where are you quarantined today? Well, we're in Dartmouth. And where are you today? Portsmouth. They said, well, aren't you supposed to be quarantining in the same place? I said, I am. It's a boat. (laughs) And they said, oh, I have to talk to my supervisor because they couldn't figure that out. Yeah, I love it. it.
0: I love it. Having a mobile home is a lovely thing. (laughs) It is. So Tell so. you're downstairs in the birth of the boat right now as you're uh, connecting with us to talk a little bit about the journey you've had. So take us through that. Go right back to the beginning. When in your mind did you realize that this was going to be potentially an extremely disruptive technology that has the opportunity to change the world, that it may evolve into an asset class for traditional investors? Because I know... You, like us, were more of you know, a quant investor in traditional markets for decades. So when did the light go on and how did you make that transition?
1: Before you well, answer that, Fred, can I just ask you to go really back? Because I remember reading somewhere about kind of how you've, long you've been in the business and that you have trailblazed a couple of times in the past with unique asset classes. So just start from the very beginning, because I think it's yeah. a fascinating story. Start at the
0: beginning and tell us everything.
1: Well,
2: I'm going to start it in the middle and then go back to the beginning because I'm going to tell you when Mike and I first met each other. And Rod, you probably do too, because we were all together in Florida at an ETF conference. You had put your ETF with Horizons. Horizons had accepted my multi-asset momentum portfolio. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's when we met Kathy Wood for the first time, Chris Mm Berniske, all the group from ARK and a great team of people. And I'm sitting there running this multi-asset momentum portfolio, and you were explaining to me your theories and your philosophies. And I just said, you know what? The problem with my model is is so simple. The correlation between the asset classes was just ridiculous. Even though we're looking at 16 asset classes, the correlation was ridiculous. So I was always looking as a hedge fund manager, we all are, looking for that perfect non-correlated asset class. And that's when I met this guy, Chris Berniski and Kathy Wood, and they said, yeah, we've got $60 million under management, and we own a little bit of Bitcoin in our first ETF. Sixty million, five, six years ago. $60 million. There's $60, million. 60, million to, there's $60 billion today. It was an extraordinary accountant. They're clearly great friends and good shareholders of our company and everything else like that. But you're right. So even if I wanted to buy Bitcoin, the problem was, is they got a really early exemption to put GBTC into their portfolio, really, really early. Nobody ever got that exemption. So I said, you know what? We can get this done in Canada. Get a regulated product done in Canada faster than you're going to get a regulated product done in the United States. And that brings me to the beginning of my career. At 23 years old, I was a forex and precious metal trader, and my mentor Howard Kelly at Guardian Trust goes, "Hey." We just finished this gold boom, the gold, platinum, silver boom from the late 70s, inflation driven 70s and 80s. And he said, we've got these gold certificates and stockbrokers have no way, investment advisors have no way to buy gold for their clients in their portfolios, none whatsoever. So he says, why don't you see if you can get these certificates listed on the Montreal Stock Exchange? So then advisors, if they want to buy gold, they just buy a certificate of gold under any denomination. So we went to the Quebec Securities Commission, and the first thing they said is they said, hang on a second, gold, it's speculative, it has non-traditional custodians, it's volatile, and it's used for criminal purposes. Why would we ever <laughs> approve that?
0: So it's, a three- bear, it's a bear, it's a bearer asset. Oh my God.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, in three years, the Quebec Securities finally approved us listing gold, silver, and platinum on the Montreal Stock Exchange. Then fast forward 34 years later. I go to the OSC in 2015 and go, hey, we'd like to list Bitcoin. They go, hang on a second. Non-traditional custodians, volatile, speculative, and it's used for criminal purposes. I looked at the lawyers and I said, mm. we can win this. Mm. And they looked at me as if I was crazy. They said, what do, you, what do you think you can win this? I said, well, I've been there before. Trust me. We, we're we right. We know what this we're right. This is
0: a literal gold mine. <laughs>
2: it is. You kind
0: of needed
1: that original experience to give you the fortitude to push through right
2: it did and the story at the osc is both wonderful and tragic and a pain in the ass for some reasons as you know we launched our first global crypto asset fund as an exempt market product and the osc comes up to us they say you have to pull that exempt market product i said well reason it's called an exempt market product is because it's outside the purview of the osc they say yeah, your fund is outside the purview of the OSC, but you're not as an asset manager. And I went, ouch. And I go, well, what do you mean? They said, well, we don't know if Bitcoin's a commodity, a security, or a currency. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure I'm licensed to manage commodities, currencies, and security.
1: (laughs) I got them all covered for you. Pick your poison, you're good.
2: Yeah, I don't care what you call it. It's a horse of a different color, but anyways... And as you know, we had the brilliant Sean Cumbie working with us, doing our commodity work as he did with you, and he helped smooth all of that. But it took them a year to give 3iQ the regulated status to be able to manage digital assets. Meanwhile, all the U.S. competitors have launched and are selling their products into Canada. It drove us absolutely bonkers. But anyways, we got all that done we filed our preliminary prospectus, but now you've gone through the 2017 rush and you're now into crypto winter. But by June, 2018, we believe we're really good to go. John Mountain, the wonderful man at the OSC who we had known and a good friend is about to put pen to paper and say, we're good to go on this. And then he gets pancreatic cancer and in a three week period, he dies. He passes away, which was horrible. It was tragic and very sad, obviously, for him, for us, for everybody. But we went back and the new people in said, you know what? We're not sure we have the authority to make this big a decision because it kept getting rejected in the U.S. So what we know is if they reject a fund, they have to, if you request it, they have to document the reasons for their rejection. We read the reasons for their rejection and we said we can win this. And sure enough, a year and a few million dollars later, 10,000 pages of testimony on October 31st, we won the right to have the first major exchange listed, regulated Bitcoin fund in the world. And it was a very special day.
0: And what, thinking, and what
2: a- nothing, nothing could stop us now. We planned to launch on March 20th, 2020. Somehow we forgot to check the box of, Global pandemic is going to be around the corner. It's going to wipe out your order book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, our order book got wiped out and went to zero. We had $12 million of Bitcoin. We seeded it with another fund. And then, sure enough, within 12 months, we were just shy of $4 billion. Isn't that crazy? What a story. Yeah.
0: What, What an amazing story of innovation and persistence. To come to a place where you've helped so many people access this truly unique asset class. Now, we can argue about its future and not, I don't want to get into that, but there's been an opportunity for investors to harness a new differentiated asset class that runs in a totally different economic dynamic and a totally different ecosystem. And we had Eric Belkunas on chatting about when the Winklevoss twins originally suggested, hey, we should have a Bitcoin ETF at Bitcoin $400. So you do have to, you know, the regulators are charged with making sure products are safe and the opportunity to invest is covered off by all of the fiduciary and regulatory responsibilities. At the same time, if they're too conservative in their viewpoints, they do restrict the opportunity for investors to invest in things that help them achieve their long-term financial goals. And I just think it's amazing what you were able to accomplish. And as you say, hats off to the OG Sean Cumby for helping navigate that and being part of your team as you went through that. I'm sure there was lots of legal bills and lots of legal staff on that too.
2: There was, and obviously we had to keep going to the well. I mean, half this company's financed on Bitcoin, (laughs) (laughs) mostly mine. Um, But the reality is that hard work means we got it right. I do obviously have an opinion on the ETFs in the United States, the 15 of them that are up there. I do believe the Ontario Securities Commission got it right by approving a closed-end fund first. I do think they prematurely approved the ETFs for a couple of reasons. And the ETFs that came out of the gate first suffered some serious underperformance but a closed end fund means you buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin, that asset value tracks the price of Bitcoin perfectly. The minute you open it up to buying and selling and creations and redemptions on a given day, the leakage is massive. Like yeah. it, it really is well, extraordinary. So I
0: definitely want to dig into this with you, Fred, because you and I have had several conversations along the way on the advantages of the closed end fund, how that in such a volatile asset can provide pretty significant advantages to the unit holders. And I think you were recreating it. You were able to own a OM product or take us through. You were able to buy it, but then you had to hold it for the four month seasoning period. And you got a much closer to nav purchase price. And then as it dipped below the nav, there are things that the company 3iQ can do and the fund can do in order to enhance the returns to investors. So can you walk through that? with us to really kind of highlight the opportunity that exists in the closed end world.
2: Yeah. So there's a couple of things and they don't happen fast. And the fact that once we listed our closed end fund, you know, three competitors came out with closed end funds and yes, with a lot of marketing prowess and everything else, they tracked a lot of assets. The best day was when they all said they're automatically converting to an ETF because I'm sitting there going, they've got it wrong. They really have it wrong. So, with a closed end fund, as I said, you buy a pool of Bitcoin, net asset value tracks the Bitcoin. Now, people buying the stock, they are either going to pay, like if net asset value is 40, they're either paying 40, or they're paying 42, or they're paying 38. So, they're either paying a premium or paying a discount. With the market mechanisms of a listed security such as this, at a premium, it's over this way, at a premium, this fund itself can do what's called an at-the-market offering, meaning it can satisfy any demand for that fund at the market. And that 2% profit goes to the current unit holders of the fund. Conversely, when it trades at a 2 or 3 or sometimes a 5% discount, the fund can use the normal course issuer bid, which everybody's familiar with, to buy back its own shares. And that 5% premium it's not going to market makers. It's not going to hedge fund traders. It's not going to arbitragers. It's going to the unit holders of the fund. So the net asset value of the 3 iq closed-end fund year-to-date has outperformed Bitcoin by 300 basis points after expenses. So you're being paid to carry your Bitcoin in a closed-end fund. And in fact, if you're really good, you get to buy it at a 4% discount <laughs> and outperform Bitcoin. So the choices of a Close end fund versus an ETF doesn't make any sense.
0: Well, this really- is a bit unique too to the Canadian structure because the grayscale products don't quite have that same opportunity or haven't chosen to sort of do yeah, The that. discount
1: seems to be much wider. With this kind of premium, much wider and longer. And there doesn't seem to be any equilibrium in that.
2: The really important part is, as you know, Canadian closed-end funds to be considered a mutual fund trust have to have monthly and, and or annual redemption features to them. So you can redeem my fund once a year at net asset value, whether you had a hundred million or a billion dollars in me. Once a year, you can pull it out at the net asset value and get Bitcoin for that. Or conversely, once a month, you can do it at a 5% discount. So if it trades at a 6% discount, the hedge funds are going to buy it up and lever that trade and take 1% a month. Levered, 5 to 1 and make 50% a year. That's what they do. That's their job. But they know they can get out once a month, even at nanny NAV minus 5. Grayscale is permanent capital. You can't get the heck out of it, no matter what. Yes, Barry Silver can step up and say, I'm going to buy $50 million of the fund for myself, you know, on $40 billion. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. But it's not taking out any unit holders, He's buying it up for himself at a 15% discount.
0: Just to be clear, I want to make this clear for people who are listening. So you have the hedge funds that are out there. Let's say it's trading in Canada. This is a regulatory arbitrage opportunity that exists for the three IQ closed end products where, okay, it's trading at a 7% discount. Hedge funds go in. They buy it up to the 5.5% discount. And then they say, hey, Fred, here's your units back at this 5% discount. He says, sure, I'll buy that from you at 95 cents on the dollar. The other five cents accrues to the unit holders in the fund. It doesn't go anywhere else. And this is why the 300 basis points premium is there. So if you're a patient holder of these assets for the long term, you literally can have your whole management expense ratio and some paid for in this way. And it also happens when it's trading at a huge premium they're issuing those shares and selling them at a premium it costs less you know <laughs> they're buying it at 100 and selling it at 105 and i think it's critical because that, that loop is not often connected that those profits accrue to the unit holders who are patient the ones that are sort of hodling actually have a bit of a carry trade wind in these trade tailwind, tailwind. in these circumstances yeah
1: bitcoin with a dividend
0: Kind of, kind of. And then you've got all the security that goes on, like holding a bearer asset like this is not a small feat to hold your own keys. Like people will often say, not your keys, not your coin. And I'm like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of laptops and dumps. There's a whole bunch of lost money in that sense too. So personal security with respect to one's bearer assets is a challenge. And we've seen circumstances where that hasn't worked out. But in a traditional sense, if this is on your brokerage statement, the chain of command down to the cold storage for 3IQ is pretty solid.
2: When we were launching on the NASDAQ in Dubai, the NASDAQ group put together a video with us. And one of the parts it said the simplicity of getting secured, regulated, audited, loss of keys never. Well, in Canada, people are concerned about loss of keys because when Quadriga CX went down, you know, right. hundred and ten thousand Canadians lost two hundred and fifty million dollars. So it says buying a QBTC is easy as one, two, three IQ, which I thought was a great new tagline for
0: us. So just yeah. remember, you, you easy as one three IQ. You heard <laughs> yeah. it here second.
1: <laughs> I would uh, on that note on the Quadriga, I just listened to a podcast. I'm looking it up yet. Death in Cryptoland by the CBC. I think it's, how so many episodes here? Great podcast, by the way. really worth listening yeah. to. It's fascinating
0: what happened in that scenario. So certainly security is important. And yeah, um, my daughter brought that to my attention, actually, that particular podcast. But it does highlight how important it is in a Frontier Asset class to have the opportunity to have honest, good, regulated access points in order to get a Frontier Asset class into your portfolio. That that podcast demonstrates that very, very clearly because it's really hard.
2: Well, we testified on that. So the Ontario Securities Commission, the last, the fifth out of all five reasons. So we went on audit. Yes, it's audible. Yes, our pricing is not manipulated. Pricing, yes, it's custody is regulated. Yes, we only invest through AML KYC compliant. There's no money laundering possible. And what we do, and the fifth one, the OSC has. It's not in the public interest. And the judge said, even though the public interest law is very broad, meaning they've got a lot of leeway, he said it's not infinite. And we argued that it was definitely in the public interest when 110,000 Canadians lose $250 million, it's time for the regulators to step up, do their job and regulate. And he agreed, and the OSC agreed. And again, this was the OSC challenging us to the only, you know, it's a 10,000 page due diligence session. And that's what we say. It was four years and 10,000 pages of testimony in due diligence. So I can take that judgment around the world. And, you know, there's a little bit of scolding for regulatory overreach, which all regulators are terrified of. But yeah, of course, 3IQ, we're going to discuss this with the SEC, the FCA in London, the Hong Kong Authority. We're going to Challenge everybody. I want this fund to trade 24 hours a day, six days a week. And a lot of people don't know that. Dubai stock market is open on Sundays. Right. The Sunday is actually the beginning of the week, and it's the Monday. Friday, their weekend's Friday, Saturday. So you can literally trade this on Sunday. And if you watch all the big market moves in Bitcoin it always happens Saturday Sunday morning. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, 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 lately especially. So what do you mean so if I go to my Interactive Brokers account I can have that security and trade it on both exchanges if I want to like the CME yes. exchange and the Nasdaq you buy exchange?
2: You can. Yeah.
1: While keeping that security. So I again I so want to clear, clear same, I, same I want to clarify one thing that the regulator said. So you basically they presented the case that it's not in the best interest you presented the case that Canadians are already buying Bitcoin and they're going to find a way to get access to it. And your counter argument was, if they're going to do it anyway, make it safe for them. That's what got them across the board.
2: A hundred percent. And that's it. And the FCA in England, and they're very vocal about not wanting to support Bitcoin. Their study came out saying 25% of (laughs) Britain's own some kind of cryptocurrency or something or other. 25%. We argued that it was 5% 5% in Canada. And that's because that's what the OSC survey said is 5% of Canadians. Well, 5% of Canadians is a pretty
0: important It's number. huge. There's there's pretty. 110 million Bitcoin wallets out there in the world. Think about that from the, how many investment accounts are there? There might not even be, well, there's probably a few more investment accounts than that, but still that's a huge swath of the population that is very interested and holds some of this frontier Asset class. This is not a small thing anymore.
2: No, it's not. And let me tell you, when you come to a region like the MENA region and the UAE, there is no shortage of getting meetings. Every serious sovereign wealth fund, every serious pension fund, every serious high net worth individual, every serious family office are saying, Do we have to start taking a look at this? And I did a TV show, their morning show, Good Morning Dubai, or whatever it was called, breakfast show. And the first thing the guy says, oh, we announced this in April, and Bitcoin was at 60,000. And today it's at 30,000. What do you say to the people that bought it at 60 when you said you were launching it? And now it's at 30. I said, I actually said, I hope it falls to 30. So we can launch in Dubai at 30. So when it gets back to 60, everybody (laughs) doubles their money. And we all saw that, Mike. We went from 10000 to $60,000. we have been in this business a long time. A 50% yep. retracement is absolutely normal. And in fact, yep. if it's 75% retracement, again, we're not going to worry about that. We've seen that four or five times in Bitcoin. All we know is the supply growth rate of Bitcoin gets cut in half in two and a half years. And that usually precedes a 10x movement in the price of Bitcoin. So, yeah.
0: I'm, I'm Full, I'm full disclosure, I better fully disclose that I own a number of the three IQ products. <laughs> the funds, the I. ETFs, the closed-end funds. So it's been a blessing for us to be able to allocate to people we know, like, and trust. I mean, Sean, the worked for us and went to work for you. And we've known you, Fred, for a long time. So I can tell you that was one of the reasons that I was very comfortable in investing some assets in some of the products as they've come along. Because I knew the competence of your shop and the people there, and that's something that I think is was a little bit serendipitous, but you know, it's, sure. it's resulted in pretty awesome parts of the portfolio that have done pretty well. So, well, you you, know,
2: you were very early. You. Both you and Rod were very early, and kudos to you for understanding it. As my diversification includes investments in uh, Resolve portfolios, because. Right. Of- what you're accomplishing in the models that you've built is extraordinary. And again, everybody goes, how much do I put in Bitcoin? Like, do I put the whole thing in? Like, the guy asked me one seminar, he goes, should I sell my house and put it into Bitcoin? And I go, well, is your house 1% of your portfolio or is it 99% of your portfolio? Like, I, You know, I, I can't answer these questions. And the guy on the radio, so here's this one, the guy on the TV, sorry, he goes, I bought two Bitcoin, one for each of my daughters a week ago. He says, in my first three days, I lost an entire month paycheck. And he says, in the next three days, I doubled my monthly paycheck. <laughs> he says, what can I expect for my daughters? Can we expect them to pay for their university? And I said, well, I gave my son his allowance in Bitcoin when he was at prep school in the United States. And today he can buy a house. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, I said, hopefully, for all intents and purposes, it works out for you and your daughters. But I wouldn't be betting my kids' education. I wouldn't be betting my house on any asset class. Clearly, diversification is the tool. There's a lot of great things that are out there. I think the one thing the three of us all agree on is you got to look for something different. A standard 640 bond portfolio is not going to cut it in the next decade Mm -hmm. at all. I just don't see it.
1: I always joke that in this globalized economy, we need Elon Musk to get us to Mars so that that economy is non-correlated to the Earth's economy, so that asset managers can provide some diversification. And we didn't have to do that. I think things like Bitcoin and also what we do is we get access to the whole commodity complex. And it's amazing to see how non-correlated all those individual commodity buckets are. And even within those buckets, you see periods of low correlation within the, the more similar asset classes. So traditional investing is domestic bonds and equities. And we need to help individuals think outside of that in order to
0: help them maximize their chance of success. Well, I think it's even bigger than that. So if we went back three, four years ago, if you mentioned Bitcoin in a conversation with an investor, that was a risk that you took. They may think you are a bit out there that maybe this guy's too risk-seeking for me, or this gal's too risk-seeking for me. I think that's flipping and it's flipping to the point where if you are not having the conversation with your clients about this frontier asset class, you are at risk of losing those clients to someone who is. And I think we had Sean on with Tyrone Ross back like six or eight months ago talking about Mm -hmm. this and he's since gone and created, what is it, OnRamp, where they're helping Advisors have these thoughtful discussions with their clients about, well, how much Bitcoin is it? How can we do financial planning around that for you? Do we have a huge win where now this asset class represents such a large part of your portfolio, you should think about rebalancing in some way, shape or form? Or are you okay riding it out? But in advice land, whether you're an allocator or an advisor, to ignore this asset class out of hand, I would suggest is grave danger. It is certainly taking up a great deal of the sort of gray matter bandwidth as the asset class expands beyond a trillion in AUM. It becomes an institutional asset class. It is drawing attention from Paul Tudor Jones, who said, hey, let's go from 1% to 5%. You've got Michael Saylor at MicroStrategies has a plan for this. All of this catalyzed by COVID and the massive money printing that's going on. And all that's happening, and in Canada and in Dubai now, obviously, you have a listed product that is prospectus-based, well thought out, and you can own in your portfolio. There isn't really an excuse to be aware and to have a discussion with potential clients as allocators or advisors, really.
1: Not to mention Sovereign Nation's taking it up now. So, you got Mm. the first sovereign nation, I think, is in El Salvador that has made it a legal tender. Yeah. You also have in the beyond Bitcoin crypto native blockchains being used for domestic currency. I think Barbados is using a cryptocurrency for their use. Well, NASA, I think, started with the sand dollars. This idea of fad investing and whether this is worth zero, I'd love to throw it back to you guys. Have you ever seen anything in our industry that has, gotten the attention globally of individuals, institutions, sovereign nations, in the same way that crypto and Bitcoin has, and for it not to have succeeded in getting the network effect mass adoption. I think gold is a good example of something that is like that. I don't, I have no, I mean, I've only been in the business for 15 years. So maybe there's, you guys have seen something that got to that level and then crashed and went to zero. Any clue?
2: Well, tulips apparently, but obviously I've spent five, six years educating the masses on what this is. And it boils down to my last iteration of how I explain it. And basically, when we talk about the evolution of the internet, it's really simple. TCP, IP, internet protocol, 71, 82, SMTP, simple mail transfer protocol, then voiceover internet protocol, then HTTP, hypertext transfer protocol. Then it was text messaging protocol, then BitTorrent live streaming protocol. The evolution of the internet is nothing more than a series of protocols. None of those protocols that started in 1971 were zero. Your internet protocol doesn't go to zero. So in 2008, when the Secure Value Transfer Protocol, SVTP, Secure Value Transfer Protocol, was created in 2008, it's not going away. It's not going to zero. The Secure Value Transfer Protocol is also known as the Bitcoin blockchain. The Bitcoin blockchain is nothing more than the powerful, secure internet. It's the most powerful, secure thing you've ever created in the world. You can create money. You can create insurance contracts, real estate contracts, automobile licenses, health records. You can create anything securely now on the internet, but you have to pay to put that transaction on the internet. You pay in Bitcoin. Like, people don't get it yet. It's like I always said if you owned email in 1982 and it cost you one ten thousandth of a penny to send an email, would it have changed the way the world sends emails? No, at one ten thousandth of a penny, people are sending 10,000 emails and paying one penny. But how rich are you today if you were collecting that stamp on email? Well, that's all it is to put something on the blockchain. You have to pay one ten thousandth the value of your transaction in Bitcoin to put it on the Bitcoin blockchain. So, how rich are the guys that are going to be that pioneer all of this? And you know what? Maybe we're ninety-nine percent wrong, but there's a one percent chance that we're right because we're not a hundred percent wrong. That's a like good old Greg Fossa. Uh, you so know. It's worth
1: a one percent allocation.
2: Take the one percent allocation because if we're right, as you know. We've had what we went from a hundred to a thousand, a thousand to ten thousand, ten thousand. We're on our way to a hundred. Then we'll go from a hundred on our way to a million. Theoretically, potentially, that is not an investment prediction. That is just
1: a theory. No, it's called a random walk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not so, investment, okay.
0: advice, no, that's not investment advice, folks. Can I play devil's advocate here? I want to.
1: I want to get your. There's what you just described mm-hmm. as a piece of software as a technology, not TCP/IP, HTTP. What Is Bitcoin that isn't already available to us from looking at a software development company that can give us all those use cases, creating contracts, being able to transact in a decentralized way just by hiring a software company and creating that for you internally. That has nothing to do with Bitcoin or the blockchain. It doesn't seem to many for this whole blockchain Bitcoin thing to be anything novel. It's been around for years. So what do you say to that?
2: So that's a great question. First of all, obviously, The internet is not secure where the blockchain is secure. There's never been. People get mistaken of software sitting on top of the blockchain and the software gets hacked. It's not the blockchain getting hacked. A fake transaction never been put on the blockchain. And that's completely secure. But having said that, so five years ago, Bitcoin was created. Then this thing called Ethereum pops up, invented in Toronto. And apparently Switzerland's claiming all the rights to Ethereum, by the way, and Zug and Crypto Valley, and so pretty sure the two guys lived in Toronto. <laughs> I was infected. But forget about that part. I had five university students five years ago in my basement saying, "We need to know what will be the best blockchain out of these." Like they became like a thousand of them. He said, "I need to know what the best one is." And Francis Pouliot said to me, "He says it'll always be the next one that's created." Because the blockchains are created on open source coding, as you know, therefore everybody knows how to make it one step better. So you can make it a little faster, you can make it a little cheaper, you can always do one different thing. But in 1986, there's a picture of me in the Montreal Gazette, and when we listed gold, silver, and platinum, I made the bold prediction that platinum would overtake gold as the store of value because platinum has more industrial resources, It's more scarce and it's mined in different geographical places in the world, more geographical places in the world. The deposits
1: aren't as big. It's more broadly distributed than gold? Is platinum around the planet more broadly distributed than gold? It is, and it's more scarce than gold and has greater industrial
2: uses. What I didn't realize at 26 years old was there was already $6 trillion of gold invested in central banks and and wallets and jewelry around the world that to amass 6 trillion dollars of anything is going to be impossible and bitcoin at its peak at today 700 billion but at its peak at 1.4 billion bitcoin when it's 3 trillion 5 trillion you're not going to put a 5 trillion dollar market cap on polka dot and you're not going to put it on and I apologize to the people at poke it up because they're really good people. It's an amazing platform. So I don't- You have think to it, be so careful. I feel though. they're going to be this That definitely wasn't a slide. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you've know, you got NEO and everybody goes, oh, the NEO blockchain is great. I'm going, fine. NEO stands for New Economic Order and it's centralized out of China. How many American <laughs> businesses are going to put their shit on a, <laughs> on a blockchain called New Economic Order centralized out of China? Like, I mean- That's what I was told, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, but there's a lot of great ones, Cardano, NEM, Tezos, Algorand is one we're working with. The biggest shift for me in this entire industry was when I realized Bitcoin's not money, and it's not meant to be money. It was originally designed to be a peer-to-peer payment system, but money's going digital in our lifetime, guys. It's going digital US dollars, digital Canadian dollars, digital Japanese yen, euros, Moving money around is absolutely horrible around the world, like just mm-hmm. horrible mm-hmm. and expensive and lethargic and your credit cards. Again, I come back to Spain from Dubai. The credit cards are all halted again because, oh, how did you get from Dubai to Spain? Well, I flew here. You know, apparently we can yeah. do that. But Visa cuts everything off now. And so where's my Bitcoin wallet works anywhere? So the problem was in the early days, I tried to explain to everybody that Bitcoin was a currency. And I started spending and buying everything in absolute sight. I've got the most expensive T-shirts, running shoes. We're in Dubai. <laughs> I've got my Bitcoin running shoes on that I paid one Bitcoin for when it was like 200 bucks. And for all fairness, I got the running shoes, but I got two T-shirts, a sweatshirt, and a pair of socks. So for one Bitcoin, I said, you know, Dubai's a pretty rich place. The room full of billionaires. a pretty rich place, but I'm pretty sure I've got the most expensive shoes in the room. <laughs> and everybody oh started Oh, you know what? Who was there? The famous Mark Mobius was there.
1: Really, really, real estate, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Temple Franklin Templeton. Templeton Franklin. Emerging
1: Emerging
0: markets. markets. Markets.
2: Yeah, Yeah. he was uh, one of my heroes in the nineties. We were actually competing with him at Fidelity Investments, but he came to our session at the Arts Center to hear me explain Bitcoin. So to have Mark Mobius there and. I said, you know, when we start trading on the Dubai Exchange, the first $5,000 ticket, I want it to come from you personally. You know? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what
0: I said. I wanted to see it. So
2: uh,
0: it was good fun. Yeah, the rate of adoption has been staggering to go from in 12 years to go to at one point more than a trillion dollar asset class. It's the fastest that's occurred. It has the broadest adoption. There is no other case where it goes to zero, Rod. That's coming from Michael Saylor. So I'll credit Michael Saylor. Yeah, the, uh,
1: I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you can say. I, by the way, I'm fully on board. I think we need to think about all the possibilities. And I think I'm still a little bit of a skeptic. I think it could go to zero in a very small chance. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot going for it right now. And one of the biggest concerns I think that are off is often brought up with regard to Bitcoin is the sovereign nations feeling like it might exacerbate the use for undue
0: purposes so untoward purposes so you're uh, seeing unlike, now you unlike got the, the UK, u.s dollar the u.s dollar is processing yeah. way more transactions in that regard i mean i have to yeah. put it back to you sure
1: and i'm with you but you're seeing action against like uk just came out against finance in collaboration with canada and some other. so what it's, it's, at which point yeah so at which point does this change in the eyes of the sovereign nations and Are we conflating a single exchange, Binance being affected versus the adoption of Bitcoin broadly for these sovereign nations?
2: I'm going to touch on two points because one really cool point. But the first point is regulation is good for Bitcoin. Bitcoin has nothing to be scared of. It's traceable. So it screws up the criminal activity movement. Well, good for them. They can go to Monero. Monero will tell you how much drug dealing is being done on a daily basis just by looking at the volumes of these are called privacy coins. Sure, privacy, coins. If, if you're really concerned of hiding who you are, you go to Zcash Dash or Monero or Dogecoin, right. whoever wants to do move that around. But the reality is, is think about what happened, and this caused this latest correction. China bans Bitcoin every year, right? Every like, year, you know, yeah. Every, 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 every year. And it just keeps going. But this time, not only did they ban it, they made the electric power companies cut off supply to the mining farms. Mining farms are being shipped out of that country by the tons. And then they froze the fiat bank accounts of the Bitcoin, anybody related to Bitcoin mining or Bitcoin companies. That's the reason why Bitcoin was created in the first place. So a government can't seize your bank account. And all of their money is in Bitcoin anyways. You don't care. Seize our fiat currency account. Maybe you got a few hundred thousand dollars of our cash flow of rupee of, uh, you know, one and RMBs, but they moved Bitcoin, they got it out. It doesn't matter. So, and that's why Bitcoin was created. So I just thought that they're providing us the best use case ever by by trying to ban it. So you can't ban it. And then we did a webinar, I guess last Thursday night, which is a week after the ban. And, You go to bitnodes.io. You get to see the live map of all the computers around the world that are recording Bitcoin transaction. China's still lighting up like a Christmas tree. So it's been banned, but it's as I said, still lighting up like a Christmas tree, and it's still as active as ever
1: in China. Point being is that it's it's unbannable. It's like a cockroach currency, right? Like you just because of the many use cases, broad adoption, non physical nature of it, it'll always exist for one purpose or another and likely end up winning the attrition war. They will eventually push through.
2: But think about all our friends in Lebanon. This is as close to three weeks ago. They end up with a fiat currency crisis. They do a 70% devaluation or whatever the number is. And Mm -hmm. somebody can fact check this or whatever it is. But the Lebanese community in Montreal is very strong. We have lots of dear friends whose families in Lebanon lost 70% 70% of their entire net worth. And all they would have had to do is have a little bit of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin trades at three times the price in Lebanon, as it does here in North America, as it does in Argentina, as it does in Venezuela. We want well, a list in Colombia and in Brazil and Chile. Well, Brazil, and Brazil Peru, has- Peru
1: just elected a communist president. So it's, you're seeing it in Peru as well. new. Bitcoin ATMs, there's OTC markets, places you can go and exchange, like meet somebody physically, because the banks are still not adopting and are letting it
0: happen. But that money's being accumulated there and allowing yeah, them to. They've to launched in, that. in Brazil. Brazil launched an ETF last ETF, week, it was June yeah. 23rd. Yeah, and, it was
2: not e- uh, Yeah, I didn't yeah it, it's based on,
0: on futures. Interestingly enough, New Bank was the issuer. And as much as Warren Buffett would like to rail against <laughs> the Bitcoin world, the Berkshire Hathaway entities have invested 1.2 billion dollars into 500 million in New Bank and other crypto-related businesses that exist in South America. So, as much as he rails against Bitcoin, parts of his business are actively involved in building infrastructure and buying businesses. New bank is a new bank, and it's designed to offer electronic onboarding and on ramping into the crypto world and out of the crypto world. So to me, it's, I look at Bitcoin, you have a critical mass of owners who are also voters. And in the democracy, you're starting to see that movement in the US where Bitcoin actually has representation within government. And then I think it's, I think as these large developed nations contemplate fighting Bitcoin or somehow banning Bitcoin, to me, it's incredibly disingenuous when you have 1.7 billion people on the planet who are totally unbanked, have no opportunity to have any kind of financing or transaction. They're transacting in cell phone minutes and you have the opportunity to provide for them either on first layer of Bitcoin or some subsequent layer with the Lightning Network to have them have transactable currencies from a cell phone. And We're quibbling over this in the first world as we've got to ban it or it can't be done. All the while, you have the huge swaths of emerging and developing markets that need this. And what's your number one concern? When you're running a business in Argentina or Peru, you're an owner and operator of a grocery store. Oh, my returns on my grocery store are 10%. What are the returns on your grocery store in Lebanon right now? Minus 70%. It's not your business that matters in Lebanon. It's getting your currency into a currency that can't be confiscated and has some sturdiness to it of value. And so, yeah, we could say, well, Bitcoin went down by 50% and it's going to go That's up and down a lot. But at the same time, ask somebody in Lebanon, how's their currency doing? Peru, you've told the story a number of times, Rod, with your family and the devastating effects of hyperinflation and confiscation. Now, often governments don't confiscate because it's against the rules. What they do is they take your U.S. dollars and they give you currency of the day, and then they devalue that currency. And they said, well, we didn't take your money. We just said that U.S. dollar was no longer legal tender. You have to use our soles or pesos or whatever they are. And then they triple the size of the money supply. So if you're a business operator in one of these emerging countries that has a history of debasing its currency dramatically, your number one concern is, how do I preserve the wealth I have? And you have this opportunity to do so. And then you have stable coins on top of that. I mean, if this isn't the empowering global process to me, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's some hairs in that approach because of the fact that Bitcoin can go down 70%. So Again, it comes down to diversification and being able to diversify your wealth across. Well, let
0: me, let me ask you this. Bitcoin yeah. goes down by 70%. What are the chances that that recovers versus the Lebanese currency? That's a tough dude. I don't know, man. I think sure, that one of the chances... You can assign the probability and then you can make the allocation. Okay, so, so, so let me, let me take that back. So having,
1: having, through, lived through having lived through it, through it, it never through. comes back. It never comes back. You have Correct. to... You have to kill it and start a new currency, as we've done Correct. many times in Brazil, many times in Peru, and then hold, try to hold that peg against the U dollar. So the real issue, I think, is as you are, as a Peruvian, historically, you used to be any third world nation, your store of value is a U.S. dollar for your purchasing power. The problem now, of course, is this fear of inflation across all of the sovereign currencies. If you're in Lebanon and you have some wealth that you can, if you're lucky enough to have some wealth that you can try to preserve then diversifying into asset classes beyond the US dollar which is all that anybody wants if you like I've tried to garner private wealth clients in South America all they want is short term bonds because all they want is US currency where I see the value of diversifying into the crypto space is that ability to possibly offset that if indeed we go through a high inflation environment where there's a currency war across the world everybody's printing money and it's just a massive devaluation it's happening. Of, of currencies and massive appreciation of other assets that many South American people can't have access to. So access to a variety of sources that may appreciate in the face of global currency devaluation, I see it as a use case, for sure. We got right.
0: him, Fred. One more down.
1: I got myself, baby. <laughs> but it's still fraught with volatility and the like. It's just, again, talking about diversification and not just putting all your money in new dollars. Yeah. I think another thing that I've seen in South America firsthand is you just can't go to uh, your bank and ask for a credit card as a small business owner. It's a, it's a third world small business owner. You need a credit report, you'll get denied. In crypto land, you are now able to participate in the fiat world while holding crypto in these like bees as crypto.com, I think Hasm, I think BlockFi is going to issue one soon. And so the ability to kind of put those two worlds together even for a poor person in South America that has been able to accumulate some wealth in the crypto land is another positive use case that I see that traditional banking system just doesn't fill right now. Anyway, there's no question. I'm just making some statements.
2: It's still not easy because Vodafone won't take my CIBC visa card. (laughs) 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 Really? We're going, really?
1: Yeah. yeah, They won't
2: take a Canadian visa card. (laughs) It has to be a British hey. bank Visa card. Like, you gotta be kidding! Yeah, that's so bonkers. So yeah, my kid had to go onto the internet and buy some tokens of some sort to send them
0: to there.
1: Anyways, it's, uh, maybe,
0: maybe PayPal. Yeah. I don't know. So, Fred, what else do you see going on? You've launched the closed-end funds. You've launched uh, the ETFs, ETFs as well yeah. in Canada with Bitcoin and Ethereum, sort of being the largest points. You've got the multi-asset fund that is a um, exempt product which has a little bit of litecoin in it can you talk about any developments that you've got going on or are they all hush hush i'm not sure how much you can yeah, share with us it, on it, things that are it, evolving in your mind right now because you're certainly on the thin edge of the knife so
2: yeah i'm happy to say we don't have anything fun well right now but
0: obviously we're interested in broadening out
2: the spectrum i mean the other blockchain it's starting to become clear who the next top 10 are going to be whether it's, as I said, the Algorands, the Tezos, the Polka Dots, the Cardenos of the world. These are starting to develop use cases that are very, very interesting. And the NFT world has brought a lot of that in. So, yeah, expect that global crypto asset fund to be broadened and be more of an institutional product. Very low fiat. Institutionally, it's like 0.7% and you get management. We do have to maintain passive because they're looked on as commodities. And if you actively trade, it turns it into income as opposed to capital gain if it's passive. So we're very okay. tax sensitive on that. Having said that, the digital yield space, the DeFi and index space is huge. We've had to go through very, very complicated issues. For example, if Ontario Teachers Pension Plan lends USDC to Zach Prince over at BlockFi, it's between the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and BlockFi. 5. BlockFi 5 defaults and the Teachers Pension Plan does it. When you put a fund in the middle of that, the pension plan comes to you for their money back. Right. So we're trying to navigate around the... Maybe, um, maybe
0: just step back a minute and talk a little bit about the yield space itself, just so people have some context. So I'm not sure everyone is going to really understand what you mean by that.
1: A lot of people still don't know what DeFi stands for. even.
2: Yeah. Well, decentralized finance means that you're taking, and the biggest thing about decentralized finance is obviously stable coins. The reason why ether is where it is today is because to create a digital Canadian currency or a digital U.S. currency you have to put it in a smart contract that sits on an ERC twenty token on the Ethereum blockchain. So, yep, people may not necessarily understand it. But Three IQ owns a, a company called Canada Stable Part, a company called Canada Stable Corp that does have uh, digital Canadian dollars. We do have all those sorts of things. So, there's people that are want to borrow those digital currencies, whether it's Canadian dollars, U.S. dollars, and they're willing to pay you four, five, six, seven percent borrow your digital currencies so they can do transactions with them and then you can do that as well so there are a lot of funds a lot of rtos for disclosure i'm part of tokens.com i sit on the board of tokens.com and i'm a shareholder so we do a lot of lending and staking and different things so it's way to take these digital markets and these digital currencies and make them mainstream and create yields but Nobody has a risk model of a defi of a digital asset bank yet. So we're really starting at square one on trying to determine what are our risk tolerances, what are our risk tolerances of our customers. But yeah, we have an early access product that's turning into, uh, will become an OM DeFi fund. And I know people would be very interested. They're very interested in these sorts of things in the Middle East where they like to do those sorts of things. Second though, the main stuff we're gonna be doing is bring the Bitcoin fund and the Ether Fund around the world. As I said, our big challenge is and kind of I won't be ready to leave this until my Bitcoin fund's listed in New York, London and Hong Kong. And when I've got this thing trading twenty four hours a day, hopefully Bitcoin's at four hundred thousand, we've got forty billion and I can afford to take some retirement <laughs> <you> know, before <laughs> before I expire. But uh yeah, like we're not going to try and be everything to everybody. What we're going to try and do is focus on what we do best, which is creating these products and bringing them out.
1: So on that being everything to anybody, everybody, I always find it curious that you have been both a champion of the Bitcoin community and for many maximalists an enemy because of the fact that you go against the ethos of not your Bitcoin, not your money or whatever
0: that is. Not your keys, not your not, coins. Not
1: your keys, not your coins, right? And what you're saying is that that's risky. We're going to provide this service and it's part of mainstream. How do you feel about that divide?
2: Well, A, I love the Bitcoin maximalists and they're all, most of them are all very dear friends of mine. And I'm considered one but I have embraced uh, Ethereum and I do embrace other blockchains, but those are in professional capacity in terms of we're providing what the market wants and what they need because people, the line that drives me the most batty out of every line. Oh, I like blockchain, but I don't like Bitcoin. And
1: I just, oh, don't. God, that's <laughs> like, when you know you're starting with a newbie, right? That's like, yeah, okay, I, I,
2: can't, I can't even start that conversation again <laughs> because you're right with lightning and liquid Whatever Ethereum or anybody can do, Bitcoin maximalist claim they can do it better. I think it's easier and on potentially other blockchains. But the reality is, is 90% of the world's wealth is controlled by investment advisors. And an investment advisor isn't going to open up 600 wallets at Quadriga for its 600 clients. because so that guy's already not only lost his job, lost all his clients' money, he's going to jail and he's paying some massive amounts of fine. So he wants to put that in a Canadian trust that sits in the guy's TFSA and minds his own business. It's not one or the other. Of course, I have my own wallet. I have my own Bitcoin. I have my own keys. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to forget what the password is at some point in time. I remember I used to take off my phone. I was terrified to go into the U.S. with over $10,000 of Bitcoin in my phone because I was convinced the one guy is going to stop me because I'm wearing a Bitcoin toque is going to say, hey, let me see your wallet. You haven't declared your $11,000 of Bitcoin and we'll steal it. So I used to always dump out my Bitcoin wallet into my ledger before I would cross a border. Anyway, I've given up on doing that all the time now, but I'm not spending any more Bitcoin. That's the dumbest thing I ever did.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, so you can spend it, but you just got to replace it.
2: Yeah. But...
1: <laughs> so so it's, is it more of like the maximalist? would never buy a fund, but they recognize the value of democratizing that, and they're always going to stay in that your own wallet? I, I,
2: I can tell you every maximalist I know has maxed out their TFSA and RSP with my So, big so, big
1: what's, <laughs> so this uh, is what's fascinating, right? What's fascinating <laughs> so is I remember when I started in the business and people would have a couple hundred thousand dollars in savings. I dealt with like what I call it professionals. And they're like, yeah, I don't care about my portfolio. Do whatever you want. And nobody really cares about security, diversification, future growth until they reach a certain level of wealth. It's 250000 or 500000 At that point, they become as paranoid as it gets. And I feel like the more conversations I have with Bitcoiners that have all of a sudden, they're looking at their portfolio and saying, oh my God, I have all of this in 12 words, single wallet. So I got to diversify my custody of this thing, right? So all the not giving your money away to anybody that's not you goes away. You really become paranoid enough where you're building moats around all of that wealth. I've seen them go into main street I've seen them look for custody solutions that are better than their own. So it's just, it's that maximalist on your own until it isn't until it's so much that you're like, I might as well diversify.
2: Well, they all moved to Puerto Rico so they don't have to pay any taxes. It's
1: frightening, it's shifting the
2: wealth that was created in Bitcoin. Yeah. That trillion dollars or 700 billion, it's split amongst a very unique group of individuals. And yeah, they're very sensitive. Now they're turning very private. They've gone from very public. You don't see them on Twitter anymore. You don't see a lot of bragging going on. You don't see pictures of the yachts. This cyber terrorism, I get so mad at Bell Canada because we're coming up to a long weekend. I can almost guarantee you, I'm going to try and get sim swap twenty times on the long weekend on my original phone because whenever you get to a long weekend, these hackers who know my cell number they start to go and Bell Canada texts me, "Oh, uh, we'd like you to confirm that you're changing your sim card to another phone." And I'm going, "No, not not. You're not allowed to even entertain this. There should be a big red flag that pops up on your screen and says." This guy is not trying to, and it happened like 20 times. Sure enough, 21st time, some guy goes, yeah, stops the Zoom card. And you notice 2 o'clock in the morning, your phone's gone dead. And you go, it happened again. Yeah, so I've got my regular phone, my super secret hooker phone that nobody knows
1: the number. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's why nobody, even with gold, nobody owns all, or very few people own all their gold bars in their own safe. You go from owning your, a little bit of gold bars in your own safe to some bars at Scotia to some GLD ETF if you want the asset class exposure. That's the way it's going when it comes to custody. I well, see no other
2: way. People doing due diligence ask us for the protocols that we use with Gemini for our cold storage and everything. They said, if I told you the protocols we use for our security, <laughs> then it wouldn't be secure. So no, I'm not telling you whether it's It's my dental record, so good luck with that. (laughs) Anyways, it's really been an exciting ride. I've enjoyed being on it, and I appreciate the fact that you guys joined us early and supported us. And I know Rod and Mike, our relationship will continue for years to come, and I hope when we get to the Caribbean, you can come and visit us. That'd be yeah, great.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Fred, you missed the, the right, memo. I'll take
2: a right turn and, yeah, well, I'm gonna take a right turn and try and get the game in.
1: <laughs> yeah. Fred, way. you missed the memo, though. Yeah. It's uh, when you make it in Bitcoin, you're supposed to buy a Ferrari, not a boat. <laughs> What's wrong with you?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I've got a yeah, I don't have any of those kind of fancy things. But, uh, <laughs> well, so so to end on the last funny story that I said the three most expensive things I've bought in my life: my house, my boat, and dinner for a bunch of <laughs> in my in italy when bitcoin was 200 dollars, and i was showing them yeah i can buy dinner for like seven bitcoin <laughs> it's uh, third most expensive oh, thing yeah. more expensive than my daughter's weddings more expensive than any present i could ever get my wife <laughs> it's uh, the third most expensive thing in my life so uh
1: anyways uh yeah man yeah keep that in your pocket it's not currency store Wait. wealth it yeah, is a score
2: well. So don't spend your Bitcoin. Just buy my fund and total.
0: There you go. Good plugged in. Not um,
1: investment advice.
0: Yeah. Uh, Fred. Good job. I think I mean it's his fun. I don't know. He could probably say that. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, thank you so much. Been too long and we'll have you back again for sure. Maybe when you're when we're in the Caribbean, we'll do a call from there when we can all gather physically. But yeah, I just want to thank you for your contributions today and your contributions over the last three to five years in bringing this asset class to so many people and bringing them the opportunity to uh, participate. So thank you for that.
2: Great. Thank you for having me again. Mike and Rod, it was great to see you both. Cheers.
1: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.